We're going to be reading from the book of Isaiah this morning. If you do not have a Bible with you, our Frontlines team has a stack of them. And if you just put up your hand, they would be happy to bring you one. And uh, if you are in need of a Bible in your life, feel free to keep this as a gift. So we're in the book of Isaiah. We're going to be starting in chapter 6. So Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, and each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people with unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sins are atoned for. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Sonia, for reading the scripture for us this morning. Well, we are into week three. Uh, technically, it's probably week two, but um, some of you know that I got so excited about the Lord's Prayer that I started a week early and gave a bit of a summary as far as what the Lord's Prayer is and why it's so meaningful and important into the life of those who, who follow Jesus and are disciples. And so if you haven't listened to any of the messages so far in this series, I'd encourage you to go to our podcast, both on Apple uh, Podcasts and on Google Play, and catch uh, before we jump into this morning's message and the specific line that we're focusing on, why don't you take a moment to just be still, close your eyes, breathe. You've been breathing, but maybe you've been breathing rather quickly and haven't understood that. Just take a moment to, to pause. Uh, ask the Spirit of God to speak to you this morning, reveal who Jesus is to you. Open our hearts today, God, we pray. Hallowed be your name. And all God's people said, amen. Well, on May 28th, 2010, I married my best friend. Uh, I have a picture here. Obviously, if you're here and you've been here and paying attention, 
Um, you heard my wife speak, and some of you are like, well, she'd probably be easy to fall for. Absolutely. Very easy to fall for. Uh, gospel-centered, spirit-led, mission-focused, incredible woman. And on her wedding day, and I would say probably for most brides on their wedding day, they're wearing the dress, and everybody is just like, whoa, the bride, amazing. And on, on a wedding day, my, my wife was no exception to that. She was incredible, radiant, beautiful. Uh, I'll never forget standing at the front at the altar. We were at a, uh, outside of a golf course. It was a beautiful, it had been pouring rain, and then it cleared. It was amazing. And there I stood uh, in my suit, and I'm looking down, and there, there she is, and she's walking down the aisle towards me. And, you know, everybody. And then there's the beautiful sign of uh, reverence, right? So the bride and the, the, the minister, which now I do, I say, Would everyone please rise, da, 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 and everyone please r- rises, and then uh, because of 27 Dresses, that movie with Katherine Heigl, everyone also now looks to the groom because they want to see, like, what, how's he responding? If you've never seen 27 Dresses, you'll have to watch it maybe. Uh, but anyways, uh, everyone now also looks at the groom and is like, look at him, how's he going to respond? Um, Why I'm telling you this story is that a wedding day and a bride on her wedding day is, like, completely set apart wholly different, right? Like if somebody else on their wedding day showed up with a white dress on, you'd probably ask them to leave. Like you're not supposed to do that. And a bride on her wedding day is absolutely beautiful, radiant. And, and my wife was like that. But then something happened. Um, the honeymoon, uh, which had some ups and has some downs. And then came day in, day out, married life, where you know, I'm not as good as I thought I was. She's not as radiant as she was on her wedding day. And as time goes on, we're, come on. You're, we are comfortable enough with each other that we can go there. And something changes. Um, and a pro, I'm just, wow, I never thought I'd get this better reaction. Uh, it's coming out differently than what I planned. But anyways, um, The point that I'm trying to make here is that when you get married and you begin living out life together, uh, life is hard. Life is difficult. And the person that you married, sometimes you ask the question, where are you? Because who are you right now? And part of that is also, for me, one particular challenge that we face in my life is many of you are very nice to me because you probably, in most ways, see me at my best. You know, you see me when I'm communicating. You see this aspect of me. But you don't see me when I don't do the dishes. Or you don't see me when I come home and I'm stressed out and I speak negatively to the people in my family. My spouse sees that. My wife sees that. And so sometimes there can be moments, and the pastor's life is particularly challenging, where it's like, I can come home after a Sunday morning where it's like, wow, like something really amazing happened there, and then the first thing that happens when I walk through the door is, the kids have been nuts, take them away from me, you know, like, and that happens, and very quickly, you're like, but did you not just see what happened there? Like, that was an amazing Sunday morning. It's like, get over Sunday morning, come on, you need to be dad now. And that's a very, like, real part of our lives. But what can happen is, like, I can start to feel entitled. It's like, what are you talking about? Like, you owe me. Like, I deserve, like, your love. And then what can happen is contempt can happen. And very quickly, I begin to not see Andrea clearly for who she is, and I begin to see myself unclearly where I think I'm like the bee's knees. Right? And this happens in every single relationship. I don't think that that is unique to my own. And in part, I think the reason is, is that we don't see clearly the person that we married. We forget who they are. Um, and again, this morning, like you, you were able to hear my wife talk about the gospel, mission, and spirit-ledness. That's a great aspect of my wife, and I am blessed to be in relationship with her. But I take her for granted 
and I forget who she is. Now, I think that if we do this with people, this, now this doesn't have to be a spouse, it can be a close friend, this can be family members, we can certainly do this with God. Jeremiah, uh, and if you've ever read Jeremiah before, man, Jeremiah had a tough go as a prophet. But this is what we read, Jeremiah 2, verse 32. It'll be on the screen. Can a virgin forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. You notice the comparison he's looking at here? Like even when she's used the bride, can a bride forget her wedding dress? That would be difficult to do. Can a bride forget what she's going to wear on her wedding day or what she did wear on her wedding day? That would be very difficult to do. Yet, he uses this comparison. My people have forgotten me days without number. This isn't Jeremiah Jeremiah speaking on behalf of God, but God is saying, how can my people forget me and they've forgotten me days without number? And so if that can happen, as I said, in our own relationships with one another, it certainly happens in our relationship with God, and there's a testament here. And guess what? Jesus knows this. And that's why the next part of the prayer is, hallowed be your name. After Jesus has instructed us to pray and to know who are we are addressing, that we are addressing our Father in heaven, he then says, we need to stop for a second and just hallowed the name of God. And who he is. Now, you might be like, hallowed? What does this even mean? Like, you don't use the word hallowed. I mean, Halloween's coming. But you don't use the word hallowed regularly. And so what does hallowed mean? Another way of putting it in some of your translations might be, holy is your name. Uh, Hallowed is to be set apart. It's to be unique. It's to be wholly other. It's like nothing else. Nothing compares. And so hallowed be your name is really a prayer of praise, it's a prayer of adoration, it's a prayer of worship, emphasizing the restoration of God's beautiful name. And this part of the prayer is intended to captivate, astonish, and melt us with grateful joy for who God is and what God has done which will then shape, as you think about it, it will then shape how we then pray when it turns to how we're going to love others. I taught that, right? That the beginning part of the prayer is love God. The second part of the prayer is how you love other people. And so Jesus intends that when we see God more clearly, we will worship God more fully. That's his hypothesis. That when you see God more clearly, when you see God for who he is, you will then worship him more fully, especially as you begin to consider who he is and who you are. Now, as we transition to a bit more of the teaching aspect of this, I thought about a number of ways that I could try to communicate this as far as who is God, but what I want to do is look at a couple of narratives in the Old Testament that I believe give us a pretty clear picture or a scene or an image into who this God is and who we are and why he is worthy of our worship and why we ought to be praying, hallowed be your name, holy is your name, praise your name. And so if you have your Bibles, let's start. Exodus 19. As you can maybe guess, Sonia read the the scripture for us, Isaiah 6. We're going to go there second. But let's start first with Exodus 19. Now, some of you are familiar with the book of Exodus. It's in the Old Testament, second uh, book of the Bible. In Exodus, you maybe know the story of the Exodus in which God frees his people from slavery in Egypt. That takes up the bulk portion of the first 18 chapters of Exodus. Then there's chapter 19, which we're looking at. And then chapters 20 to 40 are all about the law 
laws that God gives to his people in order for them to become a people that will be distinct and separate from the nations that are around them. And so Exodus 19 is really the middle. It's the hinge in the book. And at this part of the story, God is wanting to bring himself into relationship with his people and invite his, relationship, his people into relationship with him. And he wants them to clearly understand who he is in light of who they are. If we are going to worship God, we need to know who he is. And we're going to figure that out also by understanding more clearly who we actually are. And so Exodus 19, I simply this morning want to just put these texts before you and ask you the question, if this is who God is, then how are we ought to, how ought we to treat him? If this is who God is, how should we then treat him? Is he worthy of our praise? Is he worthy of our worship? Is he worth all of our lives given over to him? Exodus 19, let's start here. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And so here in the first six verses of chapter 19 gives us a bit of the context. Israel is in Sinai. They're before the mountain. God speaks to Moses and says, I'm going to invite this people to be my people. And I'm going to ask them to bind themselves to me, to obey me going forward. What happens next? So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set them before, set before them all of these words that the Lord had commanded him. He's the mouthpiece. He's the mediator between a holy God and the people. And all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. How many of you have ever had that intention with the Lord? It's like, okay, all that the Lord has spoken, I will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe you forever. Interesting. So God says, I'm going to come to see you. I'm going to speak to you so that people will know that you're my mediator and my leader, but then also that they can believe you forever. Now, when we read this, we read this sometimes through the lens of, for some of us who are followers of Jesus, we read this through the lens of, like, I meet with God all the time. That's not the case in the context here. God is saying, I'm going to come meet with my people. They just left Egypt, a land that worshipped hundreds of gods. And so what the God is doing here is significant. He's saying, I'm going to show them both who you are as their mediator between me and you, but then I'm going to show them myself. I'm going to meet with you, Moses, and I want them to see it and to know that I am worthy of worship. So Moses 
told the words of the people to the Lord, and the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments. There's some preparation that the people need to go through in order for this experience to happen because they're dirty, they're unclean. And so they need to, their sacramental ritual purity that needs to happen. And so they, they're to wash themselves. Another aspect of this is that they were to refrain from having sex with their spouses. The reason being uh, was so that they'd be focused on God, not on their own desires, their own sexual desires, that they'd be clean, they'd be pure, they'd be able to be focused on God coming and meeting with them. And they're instructed to be ready for the third day. So Moses is instructed because on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Not only are they to have some ritual cleansing and purity, but look at what next. This is another preparation. And you shall set limits for the people all around saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. You can't get too close to God. Why? He's holy. He's set apart. He's unique. You're not clean. He is clean. You can't get too close. So set limits, Moses. Don't let them come too close. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. They need to understand, Moses, who I am and who you are. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot, whether beast or man. He shall not live. He can't get too close to me, Moses. There's a mediator. You're my mediator required between the people and me. They can't get too close. And then when the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people, and he consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. Imagine, okay, we read this sometimes, and we're like, oh, that's interesting. Imagine being a person in Israel, being told, God's going to come onto Mount Sinai, We've got to go through these preparations to make sure that we're ready for him coming. Verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it with fire. The smoke of it went up like a smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Moses is crazy. Like, image this scene. I know that we're not, you know, in the midst of Sinai, but picture a mountain that you've ever seen before, like a a beautiful mountain. Imagine thunders, lightning. The mountain is shaking. It's now filled with smoke and a cloud. You're like, wow, and you're standing at the foot of it. You're going to be pretty clearly able to see, that's God, and this is me. I'm not going close to that. Moses, come up. Okay, God. Like, you have to imagine, in this moment, people are realizing who God is and who they are. Right? 
This, this idea of Moses meeting with God is so significant that we read a, a number of chapters later in Exodus 33, verse 8, we read that God instructs Moses, he gives them the law, and then he also gives them instructions on how to build the tabernacle. And some of you know about these instructions a little bit because you skip over them because they're, they're a little bit boring when you get to the end of Exodus, right? You're like, why do I need to know how this tabernacle is built? But within the tabernacle, there is a holy place, and then there's the most holy place. And God, in his grace, says, I want to come and dwell in the midst of my people, and so I will dwell in the most holy place, And Moses will come and stand in the holy place, and what will separate the two areas is a curtain. And only one time a year could the high priest enter into the most holy place, and they would even wear a bell that was attached to their their leg, so that when they went in, and if they were to fall because they were in the presence of God, because he's holy and set apart, they needed to first ritually cleanse themselves so they could go in once a year, and if they were to fall over, the bell would obviously go off, and they would realize, like, he's dead. We have to get him out. But this was so significant that God would meet with his people, be in the presence of his people, and that Moses would be meeting with this God. Look what we read the people did in Exodus 33, verse 8. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at this tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. So significant was it that Moses was meeting with God that everybody in the camp of Israel would come out of their own tents and watch as Moses would go into the tent. Their whole lives were interrupted when Moses went to meet with God. This is how significant it is. Man is meeting with God. We've got to watch this happen. Moses is in God's presence. Our leader is in the presence of God. Wow. Go with me to Isaiah 6. Isaiah 6, another time when man is in the presence of God. Let's see what the response of man is to to being in God's presence. In the year that King Uzziah died, this is Isaiah in a vision, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. We talked a little about it last week, that the temple is the place where God dwells. And so what Isaiah is seeing here is the Lord sitting on his throne in the temple. The train of his robe fills the temple. God's presence is here. Isaiah is in the presence of God. This is what we're being described. Above him stood the seraphim, another indication, a spiritual being. I'm in the presence of God. The seraphim are here. Each of these seraphim had six wings. With two, they covered his face. And with the two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. I mean, a six-winged creature, a spiritual being. He's being, he's being breaking it pretty clear in this vision. He is in God's presence. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. How does the seraphim describe the Lord here in worship and praise and adoration? The the seraphim did not say, love, love, love. That would be true. The the seraphim did not say, power, power, power. That would be true. All-knowing, all-knowing, all-knowing. As much as that is true. Holy, holy, holy. Set apart, set apart. Holy, different, perfect, unique, unlike anything else, is the Lord. Of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Look at what happens in verse 4 another trembling, and the foundation of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. What descended on the mountain? Smoke 
in a cloud. And I said, this is Isaiah's response to his, the scene, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now, a couple words about woe. This isn't W-O-A-H, hashtag woe. This is woe, W-O-E. It's the word that Jesus also uses when he says, woe to you hypocrites, woe to you Pharisees. What is he meaning? Divine judgment. Divine judgment. And in the presence of a holy God, Isaiah's response is to say, I should receive divine judgment because I am unclean next to God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. I can't be here because I am an unclean person in the presence of this God. I can't be here. And I also dwell amongst the people who are unclean. I can't be here. I need to become ritually pure. And even then, I don't think I can stand being here. Gift of grace, verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. You think of the altar, the Old Testament, where animals' bloods were shed to cover the forgiveness, to have forgiveness of sin for the people. A coal is now taken from this altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Now, this is significant. (laughs) I know we saw something significant in Exodus 19. I know you know I'm biased and I'm saying things are significant, but this is significant because something external to this person, Isaiah, is making them clean. Something of God is making him clean, not something that he needs to do for himself to atone for his own sins. He is being touched by something outside of himself to make him clean for his sins to be forgiven so that he can be in the presence of God and not need to worry about divine judgment. Do you see the picture of what we're being introduced to? Isaiah, in the presence of God, realizes that he is broken, sinful, next to God, who's holy and perfect. He can't be there. Yet now he is allowed to be there because the seraphim comes, brings a coal, touches his lips, and he is clean. Something outside of himself. Now this is a theme, and it's symbolism to then what we see in the New Testament when Jesus comes. That Jesus comes... And Jesus comes and he lives a perfect life and he dies on the cross shedding his own blood not for his own sin but for the sins of humanity. That salvation, that atoning to be in the presence of God cannot be bought with something that we can do for ourselves. So my obedience, my legalism, my righteousness sitting next to the holiness and perfection of God, my righteousness are filthy rags, the scripture says. So I need something outside of myself, someone worthy who could die in my place so that I can be in the presence of a holy and perfect God. This is what Hebrews 9, verses 11 to 14 says to us. I'm using the New Living Translation here. So Christ... 
This is speaking of Jesus. So Christ has now become the high priest over all the good things that have come. High priest. He's the one that has gone into the most holy place to atone for our sin. He has entered that greater, more perfect tabernacle in heaven, which was not made by human hands and is not part of this created world, with his own blood, not the blood of goats and calves, he entered the most holy place once for all time and secured our redemption. What's that word? Forever. He secured our redemption forever. Not for the next thousand years. Not for when you're doing good, obeying him. He has secured our redemption forever. Under the old system, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer could cleanse people's bodies from ceremonial impurity. Just think how much more the blood of Christ will purify our consciences from sinful deeds so that we can worship the living God. For by the power of the eternal spirit, Christ offered himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. Because of what Christ has done, we can enter the presence of God and not be conscious of like, I'm unholy, I can't be here, I can't worship you, I need to leave or divine judgment upon myself. Christ enters in, gives you what you could not give and have for yourself, gives you redemption, sins forgiven so that you can stand and worship. Revelation 5, go with me. This is a beautiful picture Speaking to what our, our response ought to be. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written, with, written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Who is worthy? Is anyone in here worthy? No. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. No one was worthy enough to look at the scroll, to open the scroll. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Who is this lion of Judah? Jesus. Right? And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing. Now, what's interesting is he says a lion, right? So we're thinking dominant, powerful. Look what we have instead. I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Now, I know you're like, what are we being described here? This is apocalyptic literature. It's hard to understand, but take the understanding of the themes of who is now standing before at this throne. 
with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, a bleeding, bloody lamb. They fall down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbered myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing look what then happens and I heard every creature in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and they worshiped. They worshiped. Their response to the holiness of God, the lamb that was shed so they could be standing in the presence of God, was to fall down on their faces and worship. I was speaking with some folks last night. Our staff got together and heard the testimony of a a couple of folks on our staff and you're sharing about the, the moment in which they felt like God removed the blinders from their eyes. They could, they could clearly now see who God is, who they are, and that their response, because of what Christ has done, ought to be to live their lives completely for Jesus, to worship him forever. That is our response when we understand who God is, who we are, what Jesus has done for us, is to fall down on our faces, to understand he is worthy to be worshipped, he's worthy to be praised, he's worthy of everything in my life, he's worthy of my identity, he's worthy of my sexuality, he's worthy of everything. If this is who he is, this is who I am, this is what Jesus has done, I ought to worship him. And that's why people follow Jesus, because he's worthy to be worshipped. He's worthy to be praised. We follow Jesus. We don't follow Matt. We don't follow Ralph. We follow Jesus. Because he is the lamb that was slain for us, so that we, a broken and sinful people, can rest in the presence of God. So that we can be in his presence. He's holy. He's unique. He's set apart. And in his presence, apart from the blood of Jesus, we will die. And we'll be worried, we need to then come under the divine judgment of God. Woe is me, but not woe is, the, is for those who have put their trust and faith in Jesus Christ. You can take a risk, friend, if you don't believe and trust in Jesus. But a day will come where there will be divine judgment. Well, God will return, and his presence is going to fill the earth. And at that point, you either say, I am worthy myself to stand in his presence. Good luck. A day is coming when Jesus will return. And if you do not sit under the blood of Jesus, you will not be worthy to be in his presence. This is the message, friends, that we are to go and share with our world who believes that they can be worthy enough that if God is all loving, that he's going to love me enough to just let me hang around then you don't need Jesus. 
We are to bring this message. And some of you are like, this, doesn't, this is love that God gave his life for us so that we could live with him forever. Blessing and honor and praise to the one who gave me my place and my standing before a perfect and holy God. And the commission of Jesus' followers is to take this commission to the world. But it's also to be reminded of who this God is. And so Jesus in the prayer, our Father in heaven, holy is your name. That our prayers going forward for ourselves and for others ought to be shaped first by let's see God clearly. Let's understand who he is. Let's worship him and what he's accomplished for us. You might then ask the question, well, how do we praise, adore, and worship practically? You know, how do you, how do, you do this in your life? Um, and as I close, Tim Keller um, says there's five aspects of praise and adoration. And this is helpful for those of you that are thinking, wanting to think practically in the room. You know, we live our lives in submission and worship. We say, if this is what God has done for me, if this is who he is and who I am, then I ought to live in surrender in the way that I live my life, with my finances, with um, my time, with all of these different things, in submission to the king. But here's other aspects, five aspects of praise and adoration, and how do we worship practically. Number one, thinking. That our thinking will be affected. That we're going to break down and understand what, what about God is actually to be praised. We're going to list reasons in our minds as to why he ought to be worshipped. How, when was the last time you just maybe sat down and on a piece of paper you just wrote out, this is why God is worthy of worship and praise? And you maybe have forgotten to do this because you've become so consumed with yourself, so consumed with your own life. You forgot who this God is. Praise and adoration looks and says, thinks wisely about God. Secondly, expresses it. Once you've thought it, you ought to express it. You want to articulate it, declare it, and express it publicly and skillfully. You look at the Psalms, the skillful words, the skillful praise. Like we want to bring our best before the Lord and say we want to pray skillfully. When we worship, when we're singing, when we're raising our hands, this is us expressing worship and praise and adoration. As you grow, it's not enough to just stand there like this. Because in the end, all of us will fall on our faces before Jesus. So we can become an expressive people. And then you're like, well, how do I be expressive without the people around me thinking I'm weird? It's not about the people around you and it's not about you. It's about praise and worship to Jesus. Do you think the elders were standing around going, well, I don't want to be one of those elders that's falling on my face. No, they didn't even think about that. They thought if this is the lamb, boom. They went horizontal. Thirdly, how do we praise, worship, and adore practically? We appraise. We're going to appraise. We're going to add up the value of who God is, and then we're going to compare it to the other things of our lives. Like when you get a house appraisal, you're, you're having it compared to the other homes in your city. And when we worship and praise God, we're going to appraise him compared to the other things in our lives, and we're going to say he's actually worthy of everything. Compared to everything else, he's better. He's worth more. Paul in Acts 20, verse 42, he says that loving God is better than having life. That if I had a choice between worshiping God or having my life, I'd rather give up my life just to worship God forever. 
Then there's beholding. This is after you appraise, you can actually behold and experience God's love, affection, and beauty. It's a different thing to know than to experience and then sense. This is the beholding aspect. When, when maybe you're standing and you're singing or you're on your own time with Jesus or you're with your missional community and you're praising him or you're taking communion and suddenly you just like, I, I get like choked up. Like I'm beholding God right now. Like as we were singing this morning, it's all because of you, Jesus. I'm like, you can't see that, but that's me up front. I'm like this, oh God. Like he's just, I'm beholding him. His spirit is moving in me. I'm responding to his love and grace in light of who I am, in light of who he is and what he's done for me. Like I gotta behold you, God. It was interesting, um, Keller points out in this point that religious people rarely take time to behold God. Because religious people are more focused on what they can get from God rather than just beholding who he is and enjoying him. When was the last time you spent some time in prayer just beholding, experiencing, loving God? Jesus instructs us to pray this way. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And then the last part of praise and adoration is that then we can rest. When we know that what, what Jesus has done is atone for us, that we don't need to behave to earn God's approval, that we can just be loved and that he loves us, we can then sit before him and then just rest as we worship. That I don't need to worry about the rat race of life that's happening. I can just sit and bask in what he has done and who that leaves me to be, which is just to be a kid before the maker of the universe because he loves me and he's called me, he's provided me a way to worship him. As we respond now in worship, as we respond now in praise, I would ask you to consider, pray that the Holy Spirit, maybe you've gotten, you know, you're taking God for granted. You've forgotten God like a bride could forget her attire, which would never happen. And just pray, Spirit, remove the blinders. Help me see you for who you are, who I am, and what Christ has done so that I can be in your presence. The people of Israel come out of their tents to watch, to watch Moses have an interaction with God, yet we can't seem to find the time in our lives to have a daily encounter with the maker of the universe. Yet here their lives were interrupted so they could watch somebody have devotions. And we have the opportunity to step into a devotional life, encounter God daily. It's like, I don't have time. I don't add that on you as a burden, but I say, first start with looking at God. Pray that the Spirit removes the blinders so you can see who God is, who you are, what Christ has done, so that you fall in worship to this Jesus. Tonight, we're having a prayer meeting. That wasn't mentioned in the announcements because I wanted to mention it now. And we are simply in our prayer meeting going to hallow the name of the Lord. We're going to go through these five points. We're going to think about who God is. We're then going to express it in our words. We are then going to appraise God compared to the other things in our lives. We're going to pray that we'd be beholding in the presence and the adoration and praise of who God is, and then we're just going to rest. So if you're like, let's have a prayer meeting. There's prayer meetings where you, there is some petitioning, for sure, but tonight we are just going to rest. Holy is the name of the Lord. So tonight, from 8 to 9 at Lakeside Downtown, we are having a Church of the City prayer meeting to hallow the name of the Lord. I hope you will join us. I hope you'll sacrifice other things in your life so that you can be there. I realize that as parents, you know, one of you might have to stay home. We tried to put it at a time that maybe after your kids are to bed so that one of you are able to come. 
If you are a student and you need a ride tonight, we'd love to help you get there. Lakeside Downtown has been gracious to allow us to use their sanctuary space to holy the name of the Lord. Hallowed be the name of the Lord. And as respond now, and as you leave today, may you remember who this God is, who you are, and what Christ has done, which has secured your place in his presence forever, eternally. And a day is coming when Jesus will return. His presence will fill the earth. If you have not committed your life to following Jesus, understanding who he is and what he's done for you, and that a day is coming where you will stand before God, but you want to stand under his love and affection and grace, I would invite you to commit your life to Jesus today. Let us know that you've done that. We'd love to walk with you and show you what it means to follow Jesus as we all stumble forward in our relationships with Jesus, understanding his grace is sufficient. Let's pray. God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace. And I pray as we worship now, we thank you for Jesus who makes our praise and it worthy. So worthy are you. God, may you take our eyes off of ourself and may we get more clearly understanding in our lives and in our minds who you are and what you've done. And so may our praise be worthy of your worship and praise. God, we love you. We want to have you see your beautiful name restored, and we want to see this city turned upside down by the kingdom of God. May we not put our hope in princes. May we not put our hope in elected officials. May we not put our own hope in our own portfolios, but may we put our hope alone in Jesus Christ and the expansion of his kingdom. In your name we pray. Amen.